Wait, I was going to say something. Are you thinking, that's, Lee? That's why, I, that's why I said, um, uh... This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. Voluntary cooperation. Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm your co-host, Lee Kunle, and together with me, as always, are Nathan Radke and Elena Papianis. Hey, Lee. Hello. So today we're talking about The Simpsons Predicting the Future, which I know very little about. So I'm going to hand it over to the two cultural theory experts and conspiracy theory experts who will tell us all about how The Simpsons television show continuously predicts the future. What an efficient German introduction that was. Oh my God, that was incredible. I practiced it this time. Given how many times I trip over myself, I've got like 20 sticky notes which say, say only these next three sentences and no more. See, that's what I would have predicted would happen this time, but it didn't come true. My prediction was completely false. (laughs) Predicting the future is very difficult. I want you to imagine this situation. You're in a car. It's hurtling down the road. There are twists and turns, there's potholes, there's speed bumps. You're getting bounced around pretty good in the car. Sometimes the car speeds up, sometimes it slows down, sometimes it slams on the brakes, and sometimes it's headed right for a brick wall that it is going to crash into. That would be a pretty frightening situation. But now I want you to imagine the same situation, only the car seat you're sitting in is facing backwards, not forwards. The car is still driving forwards. This means that every turn, every bump, every acceleration, every deceleration, you don't get any warning. You're just getting tossed around. And you know that there's a brick wall out there, but you can't tell when it's coming up. You can look out the side window to see where you are or the back window to see where you've been, but you can't turn around far enough to look at the front windshield to see where you're going. How frustrating would that be? Yeah. That's frustrating. I think you are describing probably the experience of most zero to two-year-olds as they are like faced the wrong way in their car seat. And frankly, I'd never thought about it from their perspective. Yeah. The fact that they're safe. Uh, But no, now that you put it that way, uh, going through time in this direction and traveling in a car in that direction seems irritating and uncomfortable. Yeah, Yeah, you would feel very much out of control. Absolutely. And of course, this car situation is exactly the situation that we all find ourselves in for our whole lives. We're hurtling forward through time into the future. We can see where we are through our senses. We can see where we've been through our memories, but we can't see where we're going. We can't see into the future. We just have to react to all the twists and turns and violent accelerations and decelerations and ultimately come to peace with the fact that there is a big brick wall somewhere out there that has our name on it. It's not surprising that the idea of looking forward into the future has been so tantalizing to humans throughout history. Of course, there's all sorts of different methods that people have used. Have either of you been to a fortune teller of any kind? I've been to, yeah, I think I've been to a psychic, but yeah, not like at a a fair kind of fortune teller. I've definitely had, I've had my tarot cards read once, but that was on a date. So it's not like I planned it. And then, um, was that a first other, date? No, I think it was a, no, it wasn't a first date. Yeah. You don't and bring then, out the tarot cards on a first date. No. Although, you know, in, in lesbian culture, you might. And then, uh, 
And then I went to a psychic years ago, like with a friend at some fair down at the X or something like that. Oh, and and for our listeners who aren't in Toronto, she's referring to like the the great Canadian national exhibition. Yeah, it was like a conference of psychics or something like that. That must have been amazing. Do you remember what was said? I think I probably still have the tape somewhere. It was obviously a long time ago. It was on a little tape. I went with my best friend in high school. And of course, yeah, they told me things that I'm sure I then looked for in my life, you know, wanting them to kind of come true if they were positive things. Because, yeah, you do want to peek. Like, we all want to peek forward if we can to know what's going on. I'm going to make another prediction now. I predict that Lee is about to go on a small rant about psychics. Oh, please do, Lee. (laughs) Uh, Well, I was going to save a lot of this for a bit later when we actually get into the time travel theory stuff or like how these mechanisms are possible. Just to answer your earlier question, I've also been to a psychic and had my, uh, sorry, what is the astrology stuff? Like the horoscope, that's it. Had a horoscope, but not one of, I had my chart done, like not just look in a paper and see what my horoscope is for the day. I I paid an actual astrologist. This was all in the previous life. I remember thinking to myself uh, in both occasions that I was going to use this as a bit of a test because a lot of the predictions they made were things that this was in my early twenties when I did this or even earlier in my, in my kind of late teens. And a lot of the predictions were things that were going to happen in my late twenties, mid thirties, stuff like that. And I tried to make a mental note to see, are these things going to happen? One weirdly that I really remember is that I was supposed to, by the time I was 30, I was supposed to hit my head badly on the side of a swimming pool. And I was going to embarrass myself very terribly in some, in some way. And well, the second thing that happens like all the time. So sure. it's, it's, it might uh, happen on this episode. Oh, it's going to. I predict that I will embarrass myself in some way on this episode. And the first one, I, you know, the time has run out. I never did hit my head badly on a swimming pool before the age of 30. Um, well, but maybe you're misinterpreting it. Maybe by swimming pool, that, that, that actually represented kind of like a, like a social situation. And maybe by hit your yeah. head. <laughs> it's a swimming pool well, of you're life. Right. A swimming pool of life. Yeah. Exactly. If, if, if we allow that kind of interpretive scope, then it is true that a lot of things that are said could retrospectively be interpreted as future predictions. And this is actually what's so clever about the Delphic Oracle that comes up a lot in Greek mythology, is she gives you a glimpse of the future, but in such a way as not, as, so that you don't understand it until it's happened. Right. And then you can interpret the fact that you're going to whatever, kill your uh, father and sleep with your mother, as she did with uh, the Oedipus story. You can only interpret that after the fact. Right. And then it's too late. Then you're like, oh, man, now I got to gouge my eyes out. Right. And so I think what Nathan is pointing to is actually an important psychological component to the belief in psychics is that malleability of interpreting after the fact. Um, I was going to say I went to Delphi years ago on a trip to Greece because my dad's from there. And didn't it turn out that it was like a place where there's all this like sulfur or smelling salts or something to that were just like making her a little uh, a little crazy? Yeah, yeah she was so basically huffing a, gas. Yeah. Yeah. There is a theory that all of these predictions that actually the experience of going to the Delphic Oracle was 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 
not the way it's rendered in stories. And you would be presented in front of basically some mumbling idiot who was high all the time every day because some theories have suggested that there was, yeah, like Elena says, an opening there uh, that had, I think, sulfur fumes and other things wafting up. But I think even though there is an actual Delphic Oracle, I think the one that we're familiar with is, is one mostly handed down through narrative where it works the way it's supposed to. But even that way, it doesn't work the way you would want it to work, right? It doesn't work the way you would want the future predictions to work, which is that like a future self comes to me and says, don't cross the street at 3 a.m. Uh, next Saturday or invest in this stock before Monday at, at, at whatever. It, it, it never seems to work out that way in the narrative version of the Delphic Oracle. But we want it to work out so badly. And that's why horoscopes are such a big business. I actually looked at mine for today and it goes like this. Ahem, you're More busy working, working behind, behind the, the scenes, scenes or doing, doing something, something privately or even secretly today. Whatever, whatever the case, you will be productive and get a lot done. done. Ultimately, Ultimately, your efforts might reveal something to others or perhaps even reveal something just to you, Eureka. And I was like, whoa, I'm doing a podcast today from the bunker. We're going to be uncovering stuff about the future. That's amazing. So then I went to another newspaper and read my horoscope again. And it said this, ahem, your nature is intense, Gemini. You probably feel things deeply and spend a lot of time lost in thought. Yet, too much intensity can take a toll on your health and well-being. It might be time to go out and enjoy yourself. Get up from the chair and take a walk. Meet someone for lunch or do a little shopping or yoga. Find something active to do to break the monotony of your routine. So you might notice that the second one basically says the exact opposite of what the first one says. What I love too about horoscopes are, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, let's just put it this way. Sometimes I feel like they can, well, this is, this is going to be very common for, for people who do follow horoscopes, is that they follow, they create your day. So if you were a firm believer in horoscopes and this, their sort of power to predict things, and you read that first one first thing in the morning, you're gonna, you probably would have a wonderfully productive day because you would be influenced by that. Had your horoscope said, you're struggling emotionally today, you're thinking about things from the past, take time to yourself and, and just be quiet and still or whatever, you probably would have sat on the couch all day, um, maybe in your feelings a little bit. So they, they're such powerful influencers if you believe in their power to influence you. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's the way I feel about horoscopes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So if we're talking about prophecies and things like that, why don't we look at one of the most famous astrologers of all time for a second? Uh, and probably the most famous fortune teller in history is the French astrologer Michel de Nostradamus, or of course, Nostradamus. And I don't know why I think this, perhaps psychic. I feel like this is a thing that Lee would have gotten into when he was young. Am I right or wrong about this, Lee? You are totally right. That's, of course, also why I went to a psychic and why I had my horoscope done. I mean, I was fully into this whole scene. And, you know, a lot of it was motivated by the belief that very vaguely, quote, there's got to be more out there than what we understand, right? So there's this sort of placeholder of, I don't really know how it's supposed to work, but clearly we don't have the answers to everything. And, you know, there's a long tradition of people doing this. And, you know, there's some evidence apparently that suggests that they can do it. 
you know, I mean, the Simpsons, right, predicted some things. So there is stuff that people can point to. And yeah, you're right. I was totally into it. Plus, then I got out of it. <laughs> now I well, do this. <laughs> maybe we'll get you back into it if we talk a bit about Nostradamus. So he's sponsored by the Italian noble Catherine de' Medici. Uh, she was married to King Henry II. So this is a person with some serious pull. In 1555, Nostradamus publishes his book, uh, Les Prophéties, which is a collection of prophecies about the future. And uh, as Lee, I'm sure, is aware, there are lots of people who argue that Nostradamus was incredibly accurate, predicts the Great Fire of London in uh, 1666, French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon and Hitler, uh, the atomic bomb, the destruction of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, death of Princess Di, 9-11 attacks. But of course, nobody has ever used Nostradamus's work to predict any of these things before they happened. But instead, people go back and find coded references to these events in his writings after they happened, which, let's face it, that's way less impressive prediction-wise. You know what? That's exactly what social science is like. You know, it's a terrible, also true. It's, it's a terrible field to predict anything with. But after the fact, we're very good. We could be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, this is why this happened, and it happened in this way. So I do have some sympathy. <laughs> And the thing about Nostradamus, I mean, he's, first of all, he wrote in archaic French, which is hard to understand. It's been badly translated a bunch of times over the years. Uh, like a lot of Nostradamus quotations aren't even Nostradamus. They're just, I mean, this is true of so many of the quotations that are circulating on the internet. They're misattributed or they're just false. And even if it is one of his bits of writing, and even if it is translated correctly, he writes in this cryptic, mysterious style. We'll do a little game right now. I'm going to read you some Nostradamus, and you guys are going to guess what people have applied it to. Okay. Earth-shaking Earth fire from the, the center, center of the earth, of the earth will, will cause, cause tremors, tremors around, around the new, new city. city. Two, Two great, great rocks, rocks will war for a long time. time. Then, then Arethusa will redden a new river. river. I'll give you a hint. Arethusa is a reference to a Greek water nymph, like a mermaid. So when you first started talking about it, I was thinking about the earthquake slash tidal wave uh, tsunami that hit the Philippines. I think it was 2004, been a long time ago, but there was that awful tsunami that, that devastated that region. Yeah, sounds, I could, I could feel like I could apply it to something like that. That makes perfect sense. Uh, the, the reddening of a new river, all, all of the death that ca was caused by that event. And then there's new rivers everywhere because of the flooding that's taken place. And uh, the, the reference to like a mermaid maybe is a reference to, to people drowning. That's, yeah, perfect. It looks like Nostradamus predicted that terrible uh, tsunami. Actually, uh, people have used that to say that it was predicting 9-11. Oh, that's interesting. Even I mean, though that's... it doesn't really apply, this is basically the Nostradamus quatrain that people use when they say that he predicts 9-11. Because really of the new city, New oh, okay. York City. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, it's interesting because I, and I, I guess I'm, I'm a bit ashamed now of how literal my interpretation was because I was looking for things like shaking and water and, you know, actual references. I mean, if it's that loose where, you know, new city refers to New York, which... I mean, is it really a new city in 2001 when the, when the attacks of 9-11 happened? This brings us to a point where language almost loses all meaning. 
and I can now apply it to essentially anything. So it does, it does heighten and exacerbate that theme that we noted at the beginning, just the malleability and pliability of these very vague statements. You will meet a tall, dark stranger in your future. Well, that's undoubtedly true. That's going to happen. <laughs> that's, that's definitely going to happen to me. Yeah, sorry. I, I just don't know how much we can legitimately draw from that. Again, I would want the kind of bar that we have in science is show me the money, show me the receipts, predict something for me. Like this is often, a, it was a joke earlier, but it is an accusation that people make of social scientists, which is like, you guys are very bad at predicting the future. And in some senses, science, in order to be classified as a science requires that ability at least in some cases, you should be able to say what happens given this, given the input conditions. Yeah, you should be able to I make testable to, predictions. Yeah, and I would want that. Like, just I mean, there is that always that refrain, like, "How come psychics aren't rich?" And the answer to that is, well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. But whatever way it's supposed to work, I want that to be testable. Otherwise, we end up with like anything can mean anything, and then anything retrospectively could have been like, "See, I told you so." Well, let's try another one. Let's try another one. This one's for Elena. And here we go. Near the gates and within two cities, there will be scourges the like of which was never seen. Famine within plague. People put out by steel, crying to the great immortal God for relief. I'm having trouble, but what's interesting is the feeling I have right now. It's because I feel like I'm trying to solve like a puzzle. So I'm, I'm trying to make this fit into something that exists in real life um, in the same way this kind of the action works with these predictions. Um, and how much of your own knowledge are you having to put into this prediction? Like oh, how much yeah. do you have to supply rather than it supplying it? Oh yeah, no, I totally, I'm thinking of like gates where are these twin, is there some twin cities or something happened is where would there be a famine that I remember that have just happened in the recent, I can't, I can't place it, but it's my mind is doing a lot of work. Yeah. And you have to do but so maybe. much work because there's so little in it. Totally. It is I feel like it's like a riddle I'm trying to solve. Hmm. Let's try it another way. Let's just apply it to anything. Like, let's say, uh, death of Princess Diana. Near the gates. Have, right? Near the uh, gates, there, gates there of are, Buckingham of course, Palace. Yeah. Um, and also, there's warring cities within the palace. There's yep. like, you know, the old guard of the royal family, and then this new upstart with her new ideas. Within two cities, Paris, where it takes place, and London, where it's planned. Oh, that's good. Ah, you see? You see? Mm -hmm. People put there it up by go. steel. What do you think a Mercedes Benz is made out of? Steel. Boom. Yep. Go Crying to the great immortal yeah. God for relief because uh, they yep. didn't get yep. to the hospital in time. Uh, mm -hmm. Scourges, the like of which was never seen. Well, never the death a... of a princess like that. Exactly. This yeah. is clearly about the death of Princess Diana. Good Although one. actually this has been used to say that he predicted the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the atomic bomb. Uh, that makes right, sense okay. too. A lot of sense. Maybe, maybe you got a two for one there. Yeah. Maybe it was actually two predictions packaged into one. Or maybe these prophecies are so vague that they're completely useless to actually use to predict <laughs> a, a specific event, but they're superb if you want to try to read something into them after the fact. Yeah. So I have, I have so, a prediction yeah, that, that, for today, though. Can I make a prediction for today? Do it. Now, this is one of the few episodes that at the end we will not be depressed. 
I w- I'm willing to put money that I will manage to depress us nonetheless. I mean, we just uh, talked about true. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <laughs> that's true. But once we get so, into the Simpsons, once we actually yeah. get into the okay. Simpsons. We need a modern fortune teller, uses modern day language, speaks yes. to us about the events and people right. that we're familiar with. So let's right. go to the Simpsons. Because okay. like, if we check out the scorecard, do we have like a list of all of the things that the Simpsons has predicted? I have a, I have a pretty large list. Let's go through um, them. Uh, we'll just yeah. list all of them and then we'll go into detail. Okay. So uh, let's see. There is, oh, well, they allegedly predicted uh, the coronavirus or at least a global pandemic when in their Osaka flu episode, where they also talked about murder hornets. Ah, Marge in Chains, 1993. There you go. Which, I mean, again, isn't that outlandish? There have been other, uh, you know, major viruses that have been killing people um, or like pandemics. We've had SARS, we've had other things uh, in the past. So it's not that outlandish that they would predict something. And it's not like it was the exact thing that they predicted. Yeah, I mean, that's I remember that episode. That's a good episode. Marge gets busted for shoplifting. Yeah. And the other thing that happens is everybody's ordered something from Japan and someone in the factory has sneezed into the box. Yes. And so to say that that predicts coronavirus is a bit absurd because for one thing, it's a flu rather than the coronavirus. It's Japan, which is not China. Mm-hmm. Those are different countries. And the bit with the murder hornets is, I remember the scene, there's a part where there's like a frantic crowd and they see a truck and they say, maybe the, the cure is in that truck. And they knock over the truck and it turns out the truck was filled with killer bees. Oh, I miss and then one person eats a bee and says, I'm cured. I mean, <laughs> ouch. Such a good show. <laughs> Hold on. So th- I find this interesting. I had forgotten about the episode. Now that you re- recounted, I do remember actually watching it. But here's something I find curious when, Elena, you note that they predicted uh, the pandemic is that there were actually people in the 90s who were predicting a global pandemic. There were called epidemiologists. Nobody listened to them, right? So do we give credit for the Simpsons glomming onto an idea that is like a very low hanging fruit? Like saying there's going to be a global pandemic is like saying you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger in your future. Yeah, I mean, did it have to be Corona? I mean, what if we had SARS? Uh, swine flu, H1N1, bird flu. flu. I think H1N1 is one of those swine or bird or something. Mm -hmm. And now Corona, which one actually did it predict? Is it because we're alive now that we care about the Corona and not the SARS? You're totally right. None of which came from Japan. Like if we predict, if we're going into a faculty meeting and one of us predicts, I predict this faculty meeting is going to be boring. It's like, Congratulations. You predicted something that everybody knew was going to happen. It's like saying, hey, there's going to be a nice that our employers don't listen to our podcast. Hopefully. (laughs) Only some of our colleagues will, though. Yeah, Yeah. but they'll agree. Hi, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. So there we started off with uh, one of the more recent ones, and we've pretty much immediately come up with some fairly specific reasons why we maybe won't count that one as a prediction. How about the Siegfried and Roy tiger attack? Oh, Springfield, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Legalized Gambling was the name of the episode. Again, 1993. That was a strong season for The Simpsons. That was a strong season. So, I mean, so Sigford and Roy travel around the world with all their, you know, wild animals doing all sorts of things that you should not be doing with wild animals. Uh, So really, this isn't that 
wild of a prediction. And what we'll see later, I'll, I'll mention even some of the things the writers have said, is that they basically always go to like the extreme in their in their creative process. They're like, okay, what would be the most ridiculous thing that could happen? Or what what's, you know, a, the most silly thing that could happen? Or uh, so, I mean, it's not that outlandish that, that they would predict an attack by one of the wild animals that they do their act with. I think this falls into the same category as the last one. This is a very easy thing to predict. Mm -hmm. If you have people like Siegfried and Roy who are famous for doing these sort of magic tricks with tigers, the possibility that at one point something will go wrong and a, and a tiger will attack one of them. I think that's pretty much yeah, it's a like given. an inevitability. Yeah. Sorry, if I could just interject on this one, because I don't think that this data is available, but in order to have a, a more rigorous conversation, a piece of data that would be really nice would be to also have all the predictions that didn't come true, right? So there's been a lot of episodes, again, you guys will know better than I, what are they like in their 28th season now? How many episodes per season? Probably like between 20 and 30 per season. Or 30 seasons but at this point. Oh, 30 seasons. Okay, so the math is beyond me, but it, that's a lot of content there, and especially if we're given credit to like one-line jokes where, you know, or, or, or maybe two-line jokes as a quote-unquote prediction. I would want to, I know, I know that it's actually unreasonable to ask for this, but if we could, we would need to see all the predictions that didn't come true, and then it would really relativize the five or six that have, or 10 or 50 and I know we're going to get to other ones which seem bizarrely correct, but that is that kind of, um, what's the bias? Sorry, guys. Confirmation uh, bias. Confirmation bias when you're already looking for it and then you ignore the 99% of evidence that denies it and you glom onto that one piece that confirms it. What, what Lee's discussing Sorry. here is sort of a combination of two different theories. One is the law of really big numbers, which is a, a theory that I appreciate because I can understand it because it's basically what it says on the tin. It's when you have a really big number, a lot of really surprising, unexpected, random things are going to occur, like winning the lottery. So on the one hand, we have The Simpsons, which has been on for a really long time, 30 seasons. And not only has The Simpsons been on for a really long time, but do you guys remember when The, the Simpsons first came out and it seemed so much better than every other half-hour comedy TV show. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, I was a huge was Simpsons fan. It was cartoon. I mean, it was revolutionary. You know, yeah, that it would be like an adult-themed cartoon. And not only that, there was no laugh track. And so here's what that means. Instead of having your sitcom where you have a laugh track, where you have to have setup, punchline, pause for laugh track, The Simpsons could have like five or six jokes in a row Whereas a typical like sitcom would have to have one joke, which meant that there were so many jokes in every episode of The Simpsons. They were so dense, so many references. Because they were cartoons, they could literally show anything. If you wanted to show a blimp crashing into like a football stadium, you could show that. If you wanted to show tigers attacking somebody, you could show that. They weren't limited by anything other than their imagination. And so that means that there's so many seasons, so many episodes, and then within each episode, so many jokes and references that you end up with this astoundingly large number of jokes and references. Yeah, that's a great point, Nathan. Like they could, they had the freedom because it was animation to do those things that are beyond just our imagination in real life. 
uh, in the same way that science fiction can do in science fiction movies and novels and things, because uh, which is where you also see other examples of people claiming that, you know, the, the future was predicted because it is meant to be kind of out of this world. It is meant to be beyond what our reality actually is right now. And actually to your point uh, as well, Lee, before that you were saying about sort of looking at the number of predictions is so important because think about any one of these single episodes like Bart to the future, Bart visits the future, I can't remember what it's called. There's probably like at least 30 different things in there, at least examples of something being predicted. And then again, we just latch onto the one or two that are close to what actually happened in reality versus um, you know the other 28 that didn't. Yeah, like for example, in Lisa's Wedding, 1995, uh, this one's often looked at because it is a future episode, so there's a lot of future technology, including smartwatches and video phones. And these are other examples that people have held up and said, look, the Simpsons predicted these. There's also the prediction made in that episode that old rickety biplanes are going to come back as, again, a throwaway joke, which obviously did not occur. But let's talk about the smartwatches and video phones for a second, because that is another one of the ones that people hold up from, from this episode. Uh, because clearly you can see that's nice and specific. Uh, there are characters using video phones and smartwatches in that episode, which are things that we have now that we did not have in 1995. So is that an example of seeing the future? That episode is great. Have you, I don't know if you've seen the clip recently, but it's uh, the video chats was actually called picture phone at the time. And Lisa was talking to Marge and Marge was like crossing her fingers being like, or like lying and crossing her fingers and being like, phew, I can, I like just lied to her and I got away with it. And Lisa keeps going, mom, it's picture phone, mom, picture phone, it's mom. Picture, phone. <laughs> picture phone, mom, I can see you. Um, and they actually predicted autocorrect in that one too. I think a bully was telling his friend to like take a memo to beat up Martin and it, autocorrects to eat up Martha and then he like throws the phone across the auditorium. I think what you get with these technologies is, I mean, when you look at who the writers are, they're like a bunch of Harvard graduates, mathematicians, people who have graduate degrees in physics um, are probably all into like sci-fi sci and who knows what has inspired them as, uh, as they grew up. Uh, I think it's, just a product of that combination of like how bright they are, their knowledge of technology and their part of their job is to even, they're kind of futurists in a way because when they're writing episodes, they're writing episodes for like a year down the road. So they're always kind of thinking ahead, even in their writing, uh, whether or not it's like an episode that's based in the distant future. They're always kind of thinking ahead to put together their knowledge with their uh, creativity. And like you said, they're drawing from science fiction of the past, too. Like something like the smartwatch, that didn't first show up in that Simpsons episode in 1995. That was in Dick Tracy in the 1940s. It was in the Jetsons in the 1960s or Inspector Gadget in the 1980s. Like these are things that are in pop culture. The idea of the video phone, I mean, like how often this is where we'll give Lee a chance to come out as a Trekkie because I feel like Lee wants to discuss Star Trek's relationship with future technology. Yeah, so, you know, in the same way, I wanted data for all the times that The Simpsons got it wrong in order to be able to see how many times they got it right, and if that was beyond a statistical accident. One of the things I did in preparation for the show was just look at other TV shows and whether they, quote-unquote, predicted the future. And I went first uh, to Star Trek, because I actually 
it sounds like I'm giving myself the credit for this insight. It, 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 it's such a low-hanging fruit that anybody who thinks about it for a second makes the same realization, including advertisers a few years ago when the tablet first came out, Apple's tablet was kind of a, a pretty general uh, device within Star Trek, the next generation and beyond, especially in Voyager and stuff like that. Basically, they had an electronic clipboard that they could type on and, and, and do stuff with. And when Apple actually developed the tablet, which it for a long time claimed it wasn't going to do, couldn't do, uh, the advertisement was of a Star Trek crew, one of them, I forget which one, holding the device. And you're like, yeah, you kind of predicted that in your shows, that this was going to be the technology of the future. I think the big one for me was what in Star Trek The Next Generation was called a tricorder, which we today know is a smartphone. And for me, that was actually a pretty good, I don't believe that it was prescient in any way, but I thought it was a pretty good, um, they got close to the mark, I guess is what I'm trying to say, in what that thing could and couldn't do relative to what a iPhone or a smartphone today can can't do. So there's a lot of examples of other shows doing stuff where you see that it's come to pass in the future. Now, I want to say, I want to kind of veer off a little bit just from these examples and think about, I guess, what I would call a low-hanging fruit in, in, in the sense of predicting a future technology. Because if you have phones and if you have televisions, it really doesn't take a genius to put those two things together in a future technology and call it a you know picture phone or television phone or whatever they call it. I mean, and as Nathan said, it's happened so often in so many other sci-fi TV shows or movies. I was actually thinking with the picture phone of 2001 Space Odyssey, which I think is actually made in the 60s, 68 to 72, somewhere in there. And, you know, that's how they communicate with Earth through basically what we're doing right now, a Zoom call. Here's an analogy which might cause more trouble than it's worth, but I, I, think, it's, I think it helps. You know, Einstein is always held up as this just incredible genius because he came up with something that was just so imaginative. And I, you know, <laughs> I have, I'm in no position to judge how incredible that was in terms of a cognitive leap. But the fact was that all the elements of his ideas already existed. He just put them together for the first time. And I certainly give him credit for doing that and, and obviously understanding the math and everything else. But all the tools that you needed to come up with his theory of uh, gravity already existed in, uh, in the realms of mathematics and other areas. Again, I'm really quite at the edge of my understanding of this. But the point being that if Einstein hadn't existed, we might still have relativity today. It might have taken an extra 20 years until somebody else puts it together, but we still would have had it today. Yeah, you're and talking about like, like, a, like a zeitgeist kind of knowledge. There are yeah. ideas that are simply floating around in the same way that the jet engine was invented independently <laughs> in England and Germany at basically the same time, because the yeah. sort of the, the, the preconditions that would be required to create the jet engine, the knowledge and the materials and manufacturing, they existed in the culture. And so then you have yeah. a German and an Englishman both come up with basically the same idea. I think the telephone was the same thing, wasn't it? Elijah Gray and Alexander Graham Bell basically right, went okay. the same day to the patent office. Okay. And Bell showed up a little bit first. 
Right. Actually, same thing and with so the I, photography, like different versions of different forms of photography were all around the same time too, two or three different inventors. So yeah, that's a really great point. It's like these ideas are in the zeitgeist, there's inventors working on them and at all at the same time. So, you, and, and, and coming up with the ideas in a sense, the easy part. I mean, you know, like you can be like, yeah, there's going to be video phones in the future. Now, actually figuring out how that's done requires a huge industry of technical experts and visionaries and tech geniuses and all of that. So there is that leap. But I feel like the ideas putting them together is pretty simple. And I think that's why between the 50s and the 90s, everybody is like, yeah, the future is going to have a video phone because that's just... We've got the technology already. We just have, somebody's just got to figure out how to put it together. It makes a lot of sense. I wonder if a lot of the Simpsons predictions don't work that way. So I have one that is maybe a little, well, there's maybe two that, I don't know if they're going to be more difficult for us to explain or not, but are, one of them is kind of astounding. So um, I forget the year, but it was, oh, it was about 14 years before the Higgs boson mathematical equation that predicts, or the mathematical equation that predicts the mass of the Higgs boson was predicted by Homer in an episode where he becomes an inventor. And the it was- The Wizard I think of about, Evergreen Terrace, Right, I think it was about 14 years before CERN actually figured out that equation. Now, is it enough to say that because they have a bunch of writers who some of which will be mathematicians or, or like physics experts, do we think that that's enough of a way to explain something like that? Or is that a little too specific? I mean, this is an interesting one because there's like a scene where Homer scrawls an equation on the board. And if you actually yeah. do the equation, it is a proper mathematical equation that almost gives you the atomic weight of the Higgs boson particle. Right, it's close. It's close. Very close, yeah. I think what I would say to that is exactly as Elena points out, there were a lot of like mathematicians in the writing staff of both The Simpsons and Futurama. And both The Simpsons and Futurama had a lot of math jokes in them and a lot of chemistry jokes. What's interesting is that this was 14 years before the actual weight of the Higgs boson particle was discovered, which is amazing. But 14 years before the actual weight was discovered, they like scientists and mathematicians had a pretty good idea. And so actually what uh, uh, the fact that, you know, this equation is on the board, it, it represents probably the best guess at that time in 1998, which is why it's pretty close, but not like dead on. For sure. That's a good point. I, it's not like it's some, it's not like they had just started to think about it then. Like it was something already in the, in the scientific community that they were trying to get closer to for sure. And, and, and I, they I loved throwing that, jokes like that in just yeah. like the, oh, the yeah. nerdiest of jokes. The nerdiest. Yeah. But I think that really speaks to uh, the quality of the show where you bother to put in that kind of detail. And I know that a lot of especially animated shows don't bother. You know, if they're going to write a quote unquote equation up on the board, it's some gobbledygook that just is meant to represent equation in the mind of the viewer. But a show like The Simpsons would take that extra step of actually burying a deep joke in there for those nerds out there who would like take the time to pause their VHS tape and write down that equation and try and figure it out. But just in terms of the prediction thing, does it count as having predicted the lottery numbers if I play the lottery and win? I mean, is it a prediction? 
Or is it just like dumb luck, you know, like somebody's gonna get those numbers. And I mean, I do think that just pulling the mass of the Higgs boson out of thin air is going to be a bit much, but I would even, I don't know, like I, I struggle even with the concept of prediction here when you happen to be right occasionally about some things that you say. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point about the randomness. And actually, one of the writers of The Simpsons gives the analogy of just like a dartboard. And it's like, if you throw enough darts, enough of them are going to end up on the dartboard. Like, we're just there, we're making so many predictions, so many jokes in there that some of them are going to hit bang on or be close enough. I think that idea of like the dartboard, uh, I think that one explains another prediction that was made, where in the episode Elementary School Musical, there's a throwaway joke where a bunch of the Simpsons kids are sitting around guessing who's going to win Nobel Prizes. Like a bunch of the nerds are sitting around thinking that. And if you look at Milhouse's picks, he actually is correct uh, that he has picked Bengt Holmstrom to win in economics. And then six years later, Holmstrom wins the Nobel Prize for economics, which is amazing. But like that both you, Elena, and Lee have pointed out, it ignores the fact that if you look at the rest of the card, because it's like everyone's filled out their guesses, there's a lot of incorrect guesses, but we focus in on the correct ones. It's almost like the, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, this idea where a guy shoots at a barn and then draws circles where he hit and said, that's what I was aiming at. Because so many of those cards are misses, but then the ones that are true, we circle those and say, ah, those are the ones we were aiming at. I like the strategy of putting bullseyes uh, around your bullet holes. I think that is a very smart way yeah. to approach sharpshooting. Makes that's, you look ex- if like I ever an do extremely it, that's good shooter. <laughs> but you know, so. you know, there's there's two that are I think we have to spend some time on because they are specific. They're not something that's in the zeitgeist. These are specific predictions that were made. Why don't we start with uh, the episode 1997, City of New York versus Homer Simpson, where it appears as though there are references made to the September 11th attacks, which wouldn't happen until 2001. I mean, all I know about this one uh, is that, so they're in that episode, they go to New York and they bought a guidebook on New York that had the words $9 on it next to a picture of the Twin Towers. So it looked like 9-11. The writers say it was obviously totally coincidental but i mean are there any other references to it other than well then they travel to the world trade center which is where the entire episode takes place and so you have an episode that has like a throwaway joke where bart holds up that pamphlet that looks like it says 9-11 and then they immediately go to the world trade center that there is an eeriness to that our brains respond to that by being like "Ooh, that's that's creepy it gives you a chill almost it's also one of those things where there's like a few key landmarks in New York that they that they would have gone to, and and that will happen to be one of them, one of the few that they went to first. So, but I understand why people want to draw those connections, right? We want to like we want to put those dots together because it does feel satisfying and it does give us that eerie chill if we if we connect those dots. Although actually, as far as pop culture goes and 9/11 goes, the Simpsons example isn't even close to being one of the most creepy. Uh, there was a hip hop group, The Coup they were scheduled to drop an album in September of 2001. And the cover of that album was them standing in front of the World Trade Center and the World Trade Center exploding. And like, I'm serious, the cover of this album looks like a photograph from September 11th. It is shockingly similar. 
Uh, another I'm example so annoyed that you you managed to take that away from me because as you guys were talking, I was oh. madly googling the name of the because this is exactly the example I use in class when students bring up the fact that in some way or another 9/11 had pre been predicted, and the Simpsons isn't always their only source for this; they've attributed to other things as well. And yeah, again, actually, it was quite telling if you were around when the September 11 attacks happened. Uh, and I say that as in like you were alive and conscious and you know knew what was going on. One of the refrains that I remember hearing a lot was it was just like in a movie. And again, this notion of this kind of low hanging fruit in terms of a new idea, flying planes into skyscrapers isn't that new of an idea. I mean, we have surely in previous episodes covered how this is actually a tactic in a CIA sabotage book that is like distributed to guerrilla warriors outside of the United States. It's like how to weaponize airplanes. So the CIA had thought about this in the 80s. A lot of action film directors had thought about one version or another of this. The example of the Coops album uh, called Party Music, which is exactly that right? It's, it's, it's the Twin Towers exploding. So again, like, were all these people prescient? Or was it just that this is like, yeah, you got planes in the sky, and you've got really tall buildings. Um, and you've got like makes, thousands of album covers and TV shows and yeah, TV commercials like so and movies. Somebody's going to put them together at some point. And retrospectively, it looks like, wow, that was a prescient prediction. See, you know, since I accidentally stole the coup from Lee, Lee, do you want to talk about the lone gunman? No, because I don't know it. Oh. This was like my one pop culture reference that I came all prepared to talk about. And, and now I'm like, I'm just going to mute my microphone. That's it. Okay, I'll talk about the lone gunman. March of 2001, there was an X-Files spinoff TV show called The Lone Gunman. And their very first episode, the plot is that officials of the American government hijack a 727 plane remotely and try to fly it into the World Trade Center. And that was that came out in March of 2001, only a few months before there was the attacks of September 11th. And watching that episode now is horrifying because there are scenes from the cockpit of the plane as it's flying towards the World Trade Centers. And so, again, you might think, wait, was the lone gunman predicting the future or is it as Lee says, these ideas are in the zeitgeist. And as Elena says, if you're going to hit something in New York, like that's one of the, that was one of the main landmarks. And so it just makes sense. But our brains um, hate that kind of coincidence so much. And so, so just in terms of like uh, these kinds of ideas that we're going to collectively glom onto. And, and, and just as you were talking, Nathan, it reminded me of an experiment, which I'm going to butcher a little bit, but it was a bunch of people were told, so you had a partner and you're dropped in New York City and you're told you have to meet this person the next day, but you don't know where, okay? Now your mission is, you know, what are you going to do? And what happens is that people show up at pretty um, significant landmarks in order to hope to meet their partner there for this experiment. And there was really like four or five. So in the whole city of New York, People chose uh, Grand Central Station at noon, the Twin Towers, the New York Stock Exchange, and Central Park. And that was it. Those were like, if you're going to go to New York and you're going to list like the top couple of things that 
I don't know, or landmarks, right? Oh, Statue of Liberty, sorry, Statue of Liberty was the other one. So it's like, yeah, like you don't, like you got like not that much to choose from. And it turned out that a lot of these people were able to reconnect with the person in this experiment that they were supposed to connect with because, you know, <laughs> we all kind of think the same. Yeah, if we were going to meet up in, in Toronto, we'd go to the CN Tower. If we were going to meet up in Seattle, we'd go to Space Needle. If we were going to meet up in Edmonton, we'd say, no, let's just go somewhere else. Should, right. we, should we talk about uh, the Trump pre- presidency prediction? Yeah, let's finish off with that one, because that yeah. one, again, is so specific. Sorry, I know, but it was mind. in an episode, season 11, episode 17, Bart to the Future. Um, in the episode, Lisa has just become president of the United States, and she's in a cabinet meeting, and she just mentions, quote, we inherited quite the budget crunch from President Trump. And so, I mean, well, first of all, do you have any initial thoughts on that? And then I can tell you later kind of what the writers said about it. I mean, that is a very specific thing. There, like President Trump, massive budget crunch. And of course, Trump did eventually become president. And they had the the largest deficit that they ever had in their history. And so those are very specific predictions, both of which did come true. If, if I were in the writing room and Elena, you said that we're going to look for the most outrageous and unlikely scenarios, right? I would think to myself, okay, like what buffoon is going to become president? And there's again, like with the landmarks in New York, there's going to be like a couple that we're all going to note, you know, maybe I would have maybe added like Mike Tyson, Donald Trump, you know, like just like some goons from, you know, that we all know about and, and who we would be horrified to have as, as president. Like, like Sylvester okay, let's Stallone. The most... Oh yeah. 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 Sylvester yeah. Stallone exactly. would have been nice. a good one too. Yep. Yeah. President Stallone, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, Stallone could be like the Democratic answer to Republican Trump, you know? Totally. uh, Or President Oprah. Yeah. Nice, nice. Who, incidentally, I remember watching something where she asks a long time ago when she interviewed Trump whether he wouldn't want to become president, right? So did she predict it? I don't know. But it seems to me like, yeah, like if I was going to kind of create a buffoonish future, I would have a buffoon president. It reminds me of that movie about how stupid the future is. Idiocracy. Um, idiocracy. And, and they have make a bunch of predictions, which if those came true, I would also not be surprised. Like we all get like tang vending machines in our house and, and, and suck our breakfast out of some plastic straw from the wall, you know, like it wouldn't even surprise me. And, but it's done for comedic effect, but sure. Like, it, it doesn't seem like that much of a stretch. Sorry, I'm going on on a tangent. Hey, Elena, no, you're, what happened no, you're right room. on it. So, so back already in 1999, Trump had said publicly that he would, he, he would consider running for office at some point in the future. So it was already kind of on the radar in just public life. But what some of the writers said, uh, so one of them said, uh, what we needed for Lisa was to have problems beyond her fixing, that everything went as bad as it possibly could. And that's why we had Trump be president before her. Um, Matt Groening said, uh, back in 2000, Trump was, of course, the most absurd placeholder joke name that we could think of at the time. And that's still true. It's beyond satire. And another writer, his, his, his explanation is a little bit darker. He said, quote, it was a warning to America. Uh, that just seemed like the logical last stop before hitting bottom. It was consistent with the vision of America going insane. 
So similar to some of the things you said, like who, who are these most absurd, who are the most absurd options? Like you said, they're sitting in the writer's room, brainstorming, throwing out ideas. Trump is a natural fit um, for all of these reasons that they've mentioned. Okay, so that explains that aspect of it. But let me tell you guys a story. Back in the, the days when we could actually go to campus, I was teaching with another prof. And after class, when he found out that I taught about conspiracy theories, he said, hey, have you heard about the Simpsons conspiracy theory? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know how Trump came down the escalator and that's how he announced his presidency? Well, the Simpsons did an episode in which that happened before Trump did it, and it looks exactly the same. How can you explain that? This was a professor who said this to me. And how can we explain that? Well, we can explain that by saying that the Trump event, the real life event, happened in June of 2015. And the Simpsons episode in which the same thing occurred happened in July of 2015. It happened afterwards. Like, that one is just absurd to me. It's a mistaking cause and effect. But this is the interesting part. As a culture, we're misremembering it now. We're misremembering it. So now we're putting the Simpsons episode before. And I think in part, we're getting confused. I've seen a lot of people reference the fact that that Trump escalator episode happened in 2000, because they're thinking of the episode that uh, of Bart to the Future that Elena was just talking about. So a bunch of things are getting conflated in our memories, and we're remembering it incorrectly. What do we call it? when as a culture, we're collectively misremembering something and then getting freaked out about it. Mandela oh, effect. the Mandela effect. Yeah. The Mandela effect, which is something that we haven't ever talked about and we should because people are fascinated by it and our students are obsessed with it. So why don't we end off by talking a little bit about how the Mandela effect works? So there is a theory that says that there are, <laughs> there are uh, dimension shifts that occur every so often. And everything changes from one dimension to the next, but we retain a memory of the earlier dimension. And so there are trace elements in our current existence that point to the fact that we were actually living different lives in a different dimension earlier. The reason it's called the Mandela effect was because when Nelson Mandela, the civil rights leader and anti-racism activist, and then later president of South Africa, finally dies at quite an old age. Some people who weren't following the news were like, oh, I thought he died in prison in the 80s. And so they were kind of shocked to learn that actually in whatever, I, I, I'm making up a number, but it was sometime like, I don't know, 2011 or something when he actually died. Yes, yeah, 2010, and, um, I think. 2010, thank you. And so people have pointed to oh, no, 2015, as evidence. Sorry. <laughs> oh, all over the well, place. it's around there, yeah. right? It certainly wasn't in yeah. the 80s in yeah. a South African prison. And so this is this theory that actually there are these uh, dimensional time shifts that alter our reality. We have traced memories of it. But actually, as Nathan rightly says, what's happening is just a quirk of memory. Psychologists have done countless experiments to demonstrate that remembering as an active process that is partly reconstituting the information anew every time you do it, and it's reconstituted differently. We know this so often from court cases or ex experiments that recreate court cases. 
you can show a group of people an accident on the street, okay? One car hits another car. And then right afterward, you separate all the people out. You ask them what happened. And there is a huge divergence between really basic facts, like what were the colors of the cars or which car hit which car or were they driving, you know, the right way or the wrong way down the street? Like really basic stuff that you would think is like just central to perception as such is actually part of our memory and we constantly screw it up. It's just we're terrible at remembering stuff. Oh, that's the actual answer to what's really going on with the Mandela effect. And I've always been surprised that it's taken quite seriously by a lot of people. But yeah, this is to Nathan's point about cultural misremembering. And of course, uh, the fact that it's called the Mandela effect, I find annoying because it... (laughs) Like people in South Africa don't misremember when Nelson Mandela died. (laughs) If it really was a situation where there was multiple universes and in some of them he died in prison and some of them he didn't, then people in South Africa would also remember that. But of course, people in South Africa remember him being president because they were paying attention to South African politics. Exactly. So like, it's too bad that it's named after one of the easiest ones, I think, to debunk. But do you realize what we've done here? We've not only established that there doesn't seem to be any evidence that we can predict the future, but now, thanks to the Mandela effect, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that we can remember the past. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. So we're, we have neither future nor past. And I would like to point out that, Lee, didn't you predict? No, wait, who predicted that oh, we yeah. wouldn't be sad about this? I did. Yes. So but, I misremembered but- that. How are you feeling? Because I'm, I've, I might not be sad because I predicted that I wouldn't be sad. So I then shaped my emotions now, currently. That touche, because I'm feeling mighty triumphant at uh, the depressing end to our, our podcast because <laughs> I predicted that it was going to be depressing. So I feel great See? about the matter, which, yeah. which actually makes me feel bad that you were right. So, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm actually very confused how I feel. Yeah. And, and that's where we will end it on us being extremely confused. Uh, A couple uh, housekeeping notes. We are getting very close to having our website up. So uh, go to Instagram and sign up for Instagram. And once we get the website up, it'll have all our videos and articles. Elena's just recently posted a few things, uh, published a few things. We've got some new videos out. So join up on Instagram and then we'll put out an announcement when our website comes out. And our Instagram handle is the uncoverup. And what was your number for getting a tattoo? We have 206 followers now on Instagram. I think we need more still, but I think we're getting close, aren't we? I think I said 250. Okay. So I thought are, it was okay. 400. I, I enjoy how the number keeps coming down. No, every because of the Mandela effect. We're misremembering. <laughs> we're all misremembering the number. Yeah. But yeah, there's a great video that Nathan and Sean um, put together on the Portage UFO um, chase, which is a, like an incredible video. It's on, it's up on our Instagram. If you haven't seen it, you should go check it out there uh, because those are some things that we don't necessarily cover in the podcast. So you can go there and have a little value added video and it's, it's really excellent. Yeah. And of course, we're always happy to hear, uh, to get emails from people. They always make us feel like yes. we are not all alone in our cement bunkers. Mm-hmm. Podcast at the uncoverup.com, right? Yeah. Nailed it. Boom. Totally nailed it.